Indie Ball has a top five pick. We're going to talk about that and some big all-star game news this week on the Indie Ball Report podcast. We are back again, episode number 176 of the Indie Bar Report podcast. I'm Nick, he's Will, and we know where Kamar Rocker was drafted. We know the final score of the Frontier League All-Star Game, and we know that we have some very hot teams in both the American Association and the Atlantic League as well. So we have a lot to discuss this week, and we're going to try to power through it on this Wednesday night so you all know when we're recording this and uh, yeah it's been a, it's been a week you could say or I mean really the indie ball community in general even though I mean Kumar Rocker isn't your normal prototypical uh, indie ball kind of guy but I mean it, it is really cool I mean a, a guy I guess I mean you can't say his contract was purchased for yeah was his contract purchased for like five and a half million dollars I don't know I guess yeah. you could say that in a roundabout way, I suppose that's what happened. I mean, he he did get a lot of money out of this. It really worked out for him going to play, uh, what, all of five games for uh, the Valley Cats? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So I guess we'll stop beating around the bush and we'll kind of lead with well, was kind of obviously the lead story. Uh, this past weekend, we had the Major League Baseball draft. Unsurprisingly, we knew Kamar Rocker was going to re-enter the draft after being selected by the Mets last year. Uh, they didn't sign him because of uh, concerns with his pitching arm, if I recall correctly, was the reasoning. It could have been a variety of things, but that was supposed that it was cited. So he went, played indie ball for about 20 innings of work in five starts, and then he was selected in the first round, as we all expected, but considerably higher than everyone was projecting him. If And I think, well, you'd be more uh, apt to know if this is the right range, but people kind of expect him to be kind of a mid to late round pick, kind of around pick 20 or so. If, oh, uh, yeah, I think I think you're spot on. Yeah. I, I think I think you're spot on with that just because I'm a, I'm a diehard Red Sox fan and we were picking 24th overall and I was hoping that Kumar Rocker would still be there. I'll, I'll just put it to you that way. So I don't think there was really any uh, indication that um, any indication that he would go in the top five. Um, now, does it make sense? Yes, because I mean, we know what he did at Vandy. It's all, it's all just a matter of uh, really with Kumar, even though there are the projections were in the mid to late first round, at the end of the day, if a team was was sold on his medicals and they liked how he threw in, in Tri City, which was very good, he, he looked. I mean, he he looked very very sharp uh, with the Valley Cats in the Frontier League. So I think if a team was comfortable with the medicals, I mean, if he was maybe without the medicals the year before, a possible top five pick, why wouldn't he be a top five pick this year? And I think that's what the Rangers. Um, I think that's what the Rangers thought. They thought they, they really needed to develop pitching. They already have this Vanderbilt teammate, Jack Leiter, uh, I believe in double eight still at this point. Uh, but I think it, it was, it was very surprising to see Kumar Rocker in the top five just based on projections. But I guess when you think about it, it's not, it, as long as you're comfortable, uh, with, with those medicals and you're comfortable with his elbow, which was really the whole point that, that Kumar, 
uh, came to the Frontier League four. He didn't really, I mean, at the end of the day, he could have ha- had a 450 ERA and it probably wouldn't have mattered that much. The only thing that matters is, is the velo up is his start, is his stuff uh, still sharp and still similar to what it was. And does his elbow look fine? If his elbow looks fine, then you can't deny the talent. And I think that's what the Rangers uh, thought. So is it surprising? Yes. But I mean, I guess looking back in hindsight, does it make sense, especially for the Rangers to for a bit of an underslot in the third overall pick? I, I think it I think it does make sense. But a super cool moment for for indie ball, nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. And just to kind of fill in the gaps here, he's taken third overall by the Texas Rangers, so considerably higher than where he's kind of mocked to go. I kind of suspected he'd go higher than the mid twenties. I was like, I don't think. You know, he's going to fall that far. He was always kind of expected to be, you know, a much higher pick. And he was a higher pick the year prior. And like you said, the medical was the concern there. And even like the Mets not signing him was kind of surprising. I think at the time, like there was concerns about his arm, but it wasn't like that overwhelming. And it just seems like the Mets may have made a mistake by not signing him uh, because he looked very good in Tri-City, like you said. I mean, statistics don't really matter, but I mean, in 20 innings, he struck out 32, and he only walked four, and he kept consistently being in the upper 80s and 90s. So if he's consistently doing this with all of his pitches, clearly the arm's doing fine. So a guy that's still only 22 years old, he's already got against professional hitting. He's already kind of proven now that, look, the arm is fine it does kind of line up like, okay, if we're going to gamble on somebody, this seems like a pretty safe gamble. And again, I, I do wonder almost if like the Rangers were considering making this move and then they asked Jack Leiter about this and were like, okay, what's the what's the book on him? What's the book on the arm and everything? Being that they were teammates and they were close, it wouldn't shock me if that was the case. I'm not sure if you give him that kind of authority to you know have input on that kind of a decision, but I mean, you do have that as a resource. So, I mean, it does make sense in that regard. And like I said, I figured he would jump up and be more right around where he was picked last time around in kind of that 7 to roughly 13, 14 range. I figured it was about where he was going to go. He seemed like a candidate to jump up there. But to see him go not just top five, but top three is a bit surprising to say the least. But good for him, though. It definitely is a, a positive for independent league ball, even if he is the kind of guy that normally we wouldn't see in this situation or as a guy that's, I guess, been more more of something you'd see in like the old Northern League or the American Association or even the Atlantic League to a lesser extent. To see it happen in the Frontier League is obviously a positive. And, I mean, it's definitely worked out for all parties involved. Rocker moved up and he got a, a very healthy uh, uh, contract to start with. And Tri-City got a, a very uh, nice five-start period and some great publicity out of this. And the Frontier League looks pretty solid coming out of this, having a top three draft pick now to be able to promote going forward. Yeah, I think, I think you bring up a pretty good point, Nick. And I wonder if that Kumar Rocker thing, and while the, I guess it was a bit of a unique situation, could this set some sort of a trend for maybe some college guys who were in, in the few cases every year? And of course, it's too early to tell really at this point um, in, since the draft kind of just happened and negotiations are, are still mostly uh, mostly underway for a lot of those top draft picks. But I think that I, I wonder if this could become 
another avenue for those elite college players and maybe in the first or the second round um, in the in the first or the second round who don't sign for whatever reason. I think of a guy like Judd Fabian last year uh, for the Red Sox, but if they don't sign and they don't want to go back to school for whatever reason, whether mm-hmm. it's they don't they don't want to go back and hit with more metal bats, they don't want to go back and uh, they don't want to go back and take classes again, or maybe their degree is already done or something like that. I wonder if this if the Frontier League. I don't know because it's it's because Kumar is such a unique situation, but I do wonder if some of those um, college guys are thinking, "Hey, the cause the Frontier League is a quality league. Clearly, something that that scouts uh, that scouts when looking at guys who are maybe draft eligible. It's something they value and they care about. Um, and so, could maybe a pitcher." Specifically, a pitcher. Why instead of going? Maybe if you don't sign, instead of going back, being the Friday night guy uh, at your school and throw close to ninety-five to hundred innings. Why? Why not go then to the Frontier League instead? Maybe throw twenty-five to thirty innings. Uh, take better care of your arm, and uh, and I think the Frontier teams, Frontier League teams, would welcome that as well. So I think it's. I think that's at least an interesting question to ask in all of this. Is does this become a trend? For uh, for guys that who are drafted high in the first three rounds, say, and don't sign, but they don't want to go back to school for whatever reason, is the Frontier League a path? I think it's too early to say, uh, but I th- I do think it is a possibility. Yeah, I think it is. I think on the surface you may say, oh well, it, this is a one-off type of thing, but there has been in the past historical present of high-round draft picks kind of doing something similar whether that be to try and leverage for more money in their contract or for a better outcome here. I mean, the Frontier League has kind of proven that now. And if we're being honest, it's probably the league that's best suited for a young player just because the level of competition is probably something similar to what you'd see in either a low A or high A ball type situation. Obviously, you'll have a couple of outliers there that are are double A or better quality and some that are probably rookie ball quality as well. But it does present a nice opportunity to kind of showcase yourself. I think maybe not as much for like the high level guys like Kamar Rockers. I think those guys are kind of like your one-offs. I think they're kind of always going to be in demand where they're not going to have to do that. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of guys that are kind of like those fringe upper round picks that maybe they're more interested in it. Like a guy that's on the border of being a first line or, or not first line, a first round or second round type pick or a second and a third round pick that really won't gain much from going back to school that is kind of known or has graduated, finished the degree, a situation like that, or perhaps they're, you know, unhappy with the way their college career has gone. They don't really want to transfer and go through that whole process, something like that. Or maybe guys that took advantage of like their, I believe they, the spring athletes also got a a, a COVID season where it's kind of acted like a, it, this didn't happen. You get an extra year of eligibility. Maybe they don't want to take that and age out more. And they go, okay, well, I'm like 23, 24. I don't really want to try and get drafted as a 24-year-old or a 25-year-old. I'd be better off going in and playing against professional baseball and kind of being able to use that to my advantage. And if that's the case, then I think that could become, a, 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 maybe not a common thing, but something that... Uh, isn't unusual to see, you know, it kind of be like seeing a, uh, seeing a cycle happen. It doesn't happen very often, 
but you're good for one or two a season if you're a league, you know? So I wouldn't be shocked to see something like that be the case. I think that is a very interesting question that you raised, though. Well, I, I could see that being more for, like, fringe round picks, guys that could be going around higher if they do really well and realistically couldn't fall much lower than where they're at. And the Frontier League, in this kind of, like, scenario we're describing... This is essentially what the MLB Draft League was branded as, right? Yeah. Uh, for if you don't, maybe not if you don't want to go to school, it's a full replacement of going to school. But at the same time, I mean, you're talking about guys who are who are trying to get looks specifically for the draft. I know this year they're not even using collegiate players for the second half of their season. I I don't really understand their model. I don't think it makes any sense. I because don't think it doesn't make any sense. It, it makes no. It makes zero sense. So I think that. The, the model that I wonder about, Nick. Yeah. You, are you are you familiar with like the G League, NBA G League Ignite team? Vaguely familiar. From my rough understanding of it, and correct me where I go wrong, is that it has certain draft eligible players that then play in kind of the NBA's minor league system against kind of fringe NBAers, and then they can enter the the Ignite team players can kind of enter the draft and then be selected from there. So essentially, it's I guess the uh, basketball equivalent of playing major junior uh, basketball. Yeah, I, I think I think that's I think you're you're pretty pretty good on that. I think uh, I mean basically yeah, the Ignite team is like an elite group of. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a group of probably five to six like elite high school prospects who don't want to go to college, and instead of playing in college for a year, they stay on the Ignite team. They play against other NBA G League teams, and they also have like veterans, uh, like other like former NBA veterans playing with them as sort of like a mentorship. Now I don't know if that right. exact model could uh, could work. However, could you make do? You, I wonder if the Frontier League would be interested in a first-half type of team pre-draft that's looking for those type of uh, that's looking for those type of players and seeing if there's enough to put a team together that serves as an alternative of going back to school. Now, I, I think it's it's a little more complicated than it sounds, but especially from a league standpoint, just because they're, they're not going to be there for the full season, do they count? Do they not? Like, uh, th- there's some other questions that have to be asked. But I think it's it's an interesting I don't know I think it's an interesting thought that popped popped in my head for that. It certainly is because I mean like the Can Am League had the present of having your like Chicago Island All Stars, your Cuban National Team, your Dominican National Team that would come in and play their dozen or so games, and then they'd move on from there. Obviously, you know, playing like. I guess 40 to 50 games is a bit more than just, you know, a handful or a two-week trip. But it would be interesting, especially if, you know, hypothetically, you needed to even out the numbers for teams. If you ran that instead of, you know, like a Frontier League Gray situation, which as we have seen this year, isn't exactly the uh, the best when your name's in the conversation for having the most consecutive losses to start a season in the history of professional baseball. That's never exactly a good honor to hold. And uh, I, I think it would be something of, of interest, 
you're right where it's more complicated than that just because are they going to get home games or are they going to be just a road team when they wind up leaving are they going to be replaced by other guys or is it just going to wind up being a hole in the schedule is it going to be you know how is that going to work out payment wise too is it going to be worth it for some of these kids to you know just forego eligibility for what maybe maybe a couple hundred dollars every couple of weeks. I mean, probably not. And I mean, you got to be pretty damn certain that you're going to get drafted and be able to sign for like a fair slot number because otherwise you're kind of up the creek then. So there's other questions to ask and logistically it is tough, but it is an interesting question because it is something that I don't think is as outlandish as it may seem on the surface because there are parts to it that make a lot of sense to do it because I mean, the thing, the only thing that holds me up, I should say, is that now with NIL money, I think that maybe change it a little bit. Before NIL money, I think you could get a lot of guys really interested in it, but some of those guys now may be able to go ahead and work a sponsorship or two in there, and then they have money to stay at school to be where, okay, if I get drafted in the fourth round as opposed to the third round, the difference isn't as bad to me, and it still is a proven path, and... There's a lot to work out, but I do think, generally speaking, it's a fairly interesting concept. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> I don't know, it's just it's just something to think about. I think that, and I know this has kind of gone off the rails from the original yeah. Kumar Rocker discussion, uh, but I think it, it'll be interesting to see if that's something that maybe more kids uh, who don't, who are not interested in going back to school. And, and I guess it's, you're right. The NIL money has a lot. Uh, it depends in that sense as well. I mean, how big of a brand do you have? And of course, college baseball is not as easy for NIL money as college, fo- college football or college basketball. Uh, yeah. But uh, I mean, there's certain guys, there's definitely guys that are getting NIL money for, for baseball a little bit. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it'll just be interesting to see if that's, if that's a route that maybe more, more guys try but, and to see more if it becomes uh, a possible trend later on. Absolutely. And I also think it also depends on the school a lot. I think it's probably easier to sway someone that's on Murray State than it may be for someone that's on Notre Dame, you know, because when you have a big school back and you're like, Say a Notre Dame, a UCLA, uh, was was a handful of other couple of really solid schools there. Maybe Florida, you know, Texas. These are big schools that have big brands and big outreach there. For a school like say Duke or UNC or Northwestern or Stanford, obviously just graduating with the degree holds weight. So that way, if it doesn't work out with baseball, you still do have a valuable degree to enter the workforce with. But when you've got like these kind of more middling programs, especially guys that are, you know, their schools are pretty much division one in basketball and baseball and that's it. Those are the ones I think you could absolutely poach because it's like, okay, you came here really for baseball and baseball alone and you're really banking on baseball to work out for you. So maybe if you're willing to try a little bit of an unorthodox path, it could be something of note. But yeah, it, to just get it back onto the path of Kumar Rocker. It is a very interesting, or it was a very positive week there for the Frontier League, for Kumar Rocker, and for uh, the Tri-City Valley Cats. And hopefully we'll see more of that in the future because it is certainly a positive thing. And after the having to go through the whole Grays saga for you know weeks at a time, to have positive news like this is, is very welcomed. 
Agreed, agreed. I think that uh, it, it, it's a cool story. It's a cool story for Andy Ball, and uh, uh, it's something they can hang their hat on. And it's not, I guess it's not something we, it's something we've seen before, but I guess more recently we haven't. So it, it's a cool story for sure. Definitely is. And I think it's really like the first time in kind of like the social media age where we had a guy that had a lot of hype around him, a guy that you know, even among casual fans was pretty, I don't want to say pretty well known, but he wasn't, you know, this unknown random prospect that came out of nowhere, right? He was kind of like, oh yeah, that's Kumar Rocker. I've seen the clips on YouTube and the clips on Twitter and wherever. He was kind of known. And then after the whole Mets deal, that kind of fell through. He, he was a name and to have names like that associated in a positive way with the Frontier League it's just such a nice change of pace and to keep it on the Frontier League, but to change it up a little bit. They had their All-Star game. It just wrapped up a few minutes ago. So we do have our final score of the East Division taking it 8-1 to one in 9. Uh, it was kind of close until we got to the 5th inning. It was 2 nothing going into the 5th. Then a 5-run inning versus just a 1-run inning from the East Kind of sealed the deal. There was no more major innings. One run it comes across in six for the East to wrap it up. Eight to one. Uh, 11 8 goes the hit total in favor of the East. So I believe the hometown uh, West Division will unfortunately uh, go home disappointed as everybody breaks off and gets ready to resume the season in a day's time. Or, well, I guess while you're listening to it, the season will have already resumed. Yeah, I think uh, it's certainly a dominant performance uh, by the East Division. And I guess, I don't know, I, I think that probably the more talented division, but it's one game, so I don't know. I think uh, it, it's hard to, to really tell, but uh, I mean... Surprise, surprise, Zach Westcott gets the win yeah. So for, for the East. I know everyone threw an inning, so it was kind of just a matter of who got lucky when their offense scored, I guess. Uh, but uh, but I think it's a good it's it's a good showing, certainly, for, for the East. And I guess what is, I guess, been the stronger division since the merger. Uh, so it's uh, so good for them. And I guess I guess I wish for the fans it was a more competitive ball game, but, but good for the East All-Stars. Yeah, Cole Cook wishes it was a more competitive ball game too, seeing as he's the guy that uh, only went two and a third innings, four hits, five runs, all earned, and a walk. I mean, that wasn't a great showing from him, but it's an all-star game, so I don't think he's going to lose too much sleep over it. And if there's one thing the West did better, it was hitting with two outs. They were four for 12 versus one for 10, so good for them there. And they got more uh, runners through, went in uh, with runners on, and... They just didn't hit well with runners in scoring position. That's going to kill you. And also lead off, they weren't very good. But yeah, not much else to really say about this one. It's it's an all-star game, as we said, uh, with the American Association. It's an all-star game. You know, they're kind of fun. But uh, I don't think too many people uh, care all too much about all-star games. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I guess I wish it was a little more competitive. But, uh, but in the East, take it home and, and in fairly dominant fashion. Absolutely, but you know what has really been dominant in the Frontier League so far? What's that? The Quebec City, or the, well, I guess they are Quebec City, but the Quebec Capitals. Because they're 42 yeah, and 15, true. and they've won 12 in a row. They're good. They're extremely good at uh, at, at baseball, and they... Uh, <laughs> 
they're just totally dominant in every sense of the word and they're showing the why they are the un, they are the uh full on championship favorite at the moment. I mean like especially as of recent you have Ottawa who's lost 5 in a row but you can still probably put them in that kind of 8 tier alongside of you know uh, Washington and Evansville they're all between 34 and 36 wins. Then you have kind of that next tier of your Schaumburg, your Sussex County, your Boulders, and even Three Rivers, they have two. They won five coming into the All-Star break as well. They go seven and three in their last ten, so they look decent. Then you kind of drop off, and you have Tri-City that lost four in a row. Eight of their last ten have been losses, so not exactly killing the game there uh, for them. Alongside New Jersey, who won four in a row, so they were kind of getting hot going into the break there and this kind of like C tier or B tier of teams is you know pretty folks and you got Joliet Lake Erie and uh, a couple others in there as well and then you got some of the poorer teams with Windy City and Florence and then you know Empire State's in a category of their own but I mean undisputed is Quebec City at an S tier I mean like they're they're at 42 and 15 I mean they're just they're a machine really there's nothing they're really bad at. I mean, hell, if you win 12 in a row, it's kind of clear you're a good ball club. The, they're an insane, insanely good team. That I mean, you mentioned they've won 12 straight, and if there was any doubt about the division, even though Ottawa uh, has been quite good uh, themselves, I mean, the five-game losing streak in uh, the five-game losing streak, streak while Quebec is going on this run is kind of put it to bed at this point. Uh, I will say I'm I'm sad that Empire State has not won a game this week. Is uh, even though there's you know I guess it's the All Star break. So hopefully by the time it comes by the time this episode comes out, Empire State uh, has won. So that that'd be fun. But yeah. I think that <clears throat> I, I think Quebec has established themselves as the best team, and I think Ottawa definitely at number two. Now for for number three, I don't know. It's kind of uh, it's kind of a cluster right now. I mean, with so many teams, uh, I mean, with, I mean, really everyone is kind of in it. Even New Jersey is in it, uh, yeah. for the, for that third spot. And, and on the other side, uh, you're probably looking at, even though Sean, I mean, Schaumburg's been playing very well of late, still waiting for gateway to get it going. But I think the, I think the race for that three spot in the East is going to be, uh, is going to be really interesting to keep an eye on. It absolutely is. And the thing is, too, we have a bunch of teams that are kind of getting hot here. Tri-City being the one team, or one or two, Ottawa as well. I mean, they've lost five in a row. I mean, let's not discount that. I mean, they've still got, what, about four games or so up on the closest opponent there in Sussex County. So they still seem pretty safe right now. I think they're still going to pull it out. I mean, every team goes through their losing streaks and their winning streaks just when you pick to have them if you could pick to have them. So they're there, but you're right. The third spot in the East is interesting because you have a three rivers. <clears throat> you have a three rivers team that has won five in a row. You have uh, Rockland slash New York. This one, three in a row. You have New Jersey. That's come on strong with those four wins, which I'm just kind of surprised. Like you're saying that they're in it still. I kind of expected them to be dead. Uh, Tri city isn't doing themselves any favors by losing games right now. But I mean, this is the team that can easily turn it around and make a charge here. There's a lot of teams in that East that I think uh, by the time August rolls around, we're going to get a little bit of a better image too. But 
it's going to be a very interesting fight there. In the West, really, you, only Windy City and Florence, I would say, are out of it. We were saying a couple weeks back that Florence really needed to have a good week, and they didn't have a good week at all. So they're kind of, I mean, it's 12 games under 500. They're kind of out of it at this point. And Windy City, 10 games under 500. It just seems like a lot to make up. But everyone else, they're kind of in the same boat, you know? Like, both of these divisions, quality aside, are kind of the same when you think about it. You have a bit of a fight, really, for who's going to get that buy spot in the top in the West. And then it's really a fight to see who's going to play in that wild card. And Schomburg's good right now, but Gateway, you know, they're talented enough to be able to take that spot. Joliet's kind of come back from the dead despite, you know, not being great over their last 10 going into the All-Star break. They, they weren't really killing it. But Lake Erie's surprisingly come on as of late. So there's a lot here that I think could change. And it seems that the Frontier League might just be the competitive league this year. I agree. I think that, I think the, despite the fact that, uh, that the American Association has like, their whole massive playoffs and uh, that is kind of breaded for chaos. I think, I think you're really seeing that in, in the frontier league. And um, I think you're right when you say that the divisions themselves are pretty similar um, just because you have kind of a, just a massive fight for that, for that third spot. Um, and and w- with those teams at the top that are kind of in, in a class of their own, uh, not that Evansville and, and Washington are that much well Evans well Washington's that much better, but yeah. maybe not maybe not so much Evansville. Uh, but I think you outside of you have a pretty balanced league, I think. And I think that's the good thing I think for a lot of the higher ups in, in the Frontier League is what they want to see is you have Empire State and if you take them aside. Yeah. And I which I know is I which I know is hard to do because those games still count. But if you take them aside, I mean it's been a pretty balanced league for yeah. for the for the entire year. And I guess the fact that Empire State is a, a punching bag kind of aids the aids the East Division uh, being uh, being close to being a, everyone kind of close and hovering around that 500 mark outside of maybe Sussex, Ottawa, and Quebec. Uh, that certainly helps that. But I think that you're seeing a very balanced. Uh, frontier league um and i think it's good it's good for the fans it's good for the teams and i think it it, it's really shows uh shows for a good um for a good finish absolutely the amount of parity in this league is kind of insane and it is probably a positive for the league and i i see what you're saying where it's kind of hard to take empire state out too but i think it's easier when you realize we all kind of knew empire state was not a good team we knew that that was going to be the case going in. So it's easier to pull it out. And really then you do have kind of like uh, a notable kind of lower class in this league, a kind of really clear upper class, and then a bunch in a huge middle class. And I think it's kind of also aided by the fact that talent's pretty evenly distributed. And we only have the three playoff spots and one of them's a buy. So it makes everything mean a lot more. You can't really afford to have a bad 10 days because a bad 10 days could nearly end your season. If it becomes a bad two weeks, then it could really just kind of harpoon your season. And that's all there is to it. And 
these guys do care about winning. Obviously, the priority is kind of showcasing yourself and trying to get picked up by either a major foreign club or a major league organization. But in the Frontier League, not as common. And it's also, you're still trying to win. Uh, anyone with any sort of competitive spirit tries to win. You don't go out there trying to lose as a player or a coach. So these guys are going all out. And when they know, okay, we want to make the playoffs so we have a chance to win a championship, we got to be in the top three. It just makes them fight a little bit harder. And it just it feels so much better than looking over in the American Association and going, oh, okay, so a team that's 24 and 34 is currently in a playoff position. And that just feels so wrong to me to, to think that, okay, under the same kind of system in the Frontier League, essentially everyone but currently New Jersey, Empire State, Windy City, and Florence would make the postseason. It just, it feels wrong to look at it that way, right? So I do love the parody in it, but I also love the fact that we have competition and we have a playoff system that encourages that competition. Exactly. I think, I think that I, I'm, I fully agree there just because uh, I think at least on the, at least on the American association side of things, um, I, especially with especially with just baseball in general, when there's so many regular season games, that's why I think with so many games to play, I'm in favor of a small of a smaller postseason. Uh, and I've I've never been a fan of, of big mass of, of big postseasons. And especially as you're right, we're talking about teams that are like ten games under 500 uh, in a playoff spot. I don't yeah. think that I don't think that's good for anyone. And of course, I'm not saying it. it um, decreases the competitive value that much just because guys are trying to get picked up. Uh, so it's not, it's not like anyone's mailing any games in, but I think that uh, it makes it way more interesting for fans when you're seeing good teams going at it down the stretch. Now the counter to that is, Oh, well there's um, there's, there's teams that will never be out of it. So they're not just going to mail it in. But I think the pros that kind of outweigh the cons uh, I think four teams in each division are, are is just way way too many, um, and I don't like the idea of teams that are 500 unless, save for some very some circumstances that uh, make it that make it so where I don't know just the division just happens to be bad that year and and it happens that way. But I think in general, I don't think it's a good thing to have a team that's 10 games under in a playoff spot in any sense. I don't think it's, it's good to reward uh, teams like that. Exactly. Yeah. Like if it's one thing in like a football type event where you play, you know, 10, 12 weeks and it's like, okay, well you're six and six, but I mean, do we have enough to really go off of from just those 12 games? We're playing a hundred games. We're playing 96 games. We're playing enough games to be able to say, yeah, they only won about 45 games this year. We know what they are. There's no hiding that fact. Like we know when we look in the American Association, I guess we'll just make the transition to that now because it's the topic of conversation. We know that a 21-37 Lake Country Dockhound team is not a good ball club. We know that regardless of who gets that last playoff spot between a 24 and 34 Gary South Shore Railcat team and a 23 and 34 Cleburne Railroaders team 
it doesn't really matter because the 39 and 19 team with a near 700 winning percentage is going to pick them in the first round and is likely going to demolish them in the first round. These are things we know. Like having them in there does nothing but really give these teams another, I guess, two or three games of playoff revenue, which is admittedly important for these clubs, especially coming out of a couple of weird pandemic seasons in the case of the American Association, having the one year that was the kind of like uh, hub city year, and then the following year where everyone was back, but it still wasn't, you know, you still had it kind of hanging over a little bit. So I understand it. it is a revenue creator. It's different. It makes headlines. I totally get it. And if you want to do the kind of pick your opponent thing, you can't just have three teams. You need to have four at least. So I, to- I get it. But it just doesn't feel right to have a team that's that far out of it. It's one thing if, you know, it was like 50 and 50 or 55 and 45. It's like, okay, well, it's a competitive team. Just toss up games. You can pick through the season, find reasons why they are or aren't a good team. That just kind of got screwed by the way things worked out. But, I mean, come on. In both of these cases, there's teams that are, you know, four, five, ten games under 500 in some cases. It's it's not particularly close. These are not teams that deserve to be in the postseason. Yeah, and I think that uh, it almost... I, I think having, having three dominant teams is kind of... Not in a sense what the American Association I think was hoping for, uh, in when they created this playoffs that you don't have the dogs just totally running the East Division and you have uh, Fargo, Moorhead, and Kansas City slugging it out in the West. Which I mean, I guess, I, I mean, come on, everyone kind of knew that was going to happen. Uh, but I think, I think it's it's just it doesn't feel right as as you said and. At the end of the day, I guess uh, I guess I just wish there was there was like punishments uh, for teams who or punishments for teams. I guess like for example, in the Frontier League, you don't win your division, you gotta you got a one game playoff. Yeah, right. So I think that uh, kind of the punishments for not winning your division. Like I was I was super pro wild card game, and mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm gonna miss the wild card game this year in the MLB because I'm I'm super pro. Uh, wild card game because I like the idea of no matter what and yeah it might not be fair but if you don't win your division you have to go through an extra obstacle this is just oh well you get your first choice of these mediocre to bad teams like I don't know if that's enough of an incentive or a reward for a team like Chicago who's rolling through teams Uh, so that's kind of just how I see it I agree with you I think it's it's the kind of thing where if this was a league with, say, 20 teams and then eight made the postseason, I'd be like, okay, well, yeah, it's like a little over a third of the league makes it, but it would feel a bit more like, okay, well, let's see what happens here. Or if we just kind of said, let's get rid of the divisions once you win them. So if you are the top overall team, you could pick your next opponent. That would at least add a bit more suspense to like, okay, well, who are they going to pick? But I also feel like at the same time, especially on this level, most managers are not going for the interesting thing. Most front offices are not going for the interesting thing. They're going to pick the thing that isn't bulletin board material. They're going to pick the thing that isn't, you know, particularly notable. They're going to pick the worst team for the first round. The only possible exception I could see is 
Maybe if you're a team like Chicago and you have King County sitting there, you go, all right, well, we have a local rivalry thing. We could promote and market that a little bit better, so we'll pick them. But again, it's like, okay, everyone in that division, particularly Chicago's division, is pretty much the same team. They're within three or four games of each other for the most part. I mean, look at the other three playoff teams. Uh, 29 and 29, 29 and 30, and 24 and 34. They're all within five games of each other. And then if you really want to consider Cleburne part of this, they're 23 and 34. Okay, so like they're all basically the same team with the last two being slightly more horrific. And that's really only because Gary fell apart the last 10 games and Cleburne won seven in a row to be eight and two in their last 10. So great. If Cleburne keeps it up, maybe this could be interesting and we could have four teams that I could feel good about. But baseball is a sport that despite having probably the most well-developed analytics, despite having so many different styles of building a team in a way of processing information that most people couldn't really see and that you wouldn't think is important but in fact is like some of the most vital information when picking players despite all of that it's also a game that's just kind of like it feels like it should be a certain way and when it's not done that way it feels a bit off like it feels like i should just go ahead and have like two or three teams in the postseason even if you know, for a, a slew of reasons, it makes a lot more sense just to either go with the top two teams or go with four in this setup, right? It just, it feels off. And that feeling, it just feels, and I know I'm using that word a lot, it just is overwhelming almost. And I think it also, uh, it kind of dulls the end of the regular season. Like the Frontier League, I mean, as you'll probably notice when you're listening to this show in the last, I mean, I'm sure the last, month will be very uh, lot, very Frontier League-centric because it's going to be madness coming down the stretch. American Association, eh, like, maybe yeah. you get to choose first. Uh, or I mean, I guess for Kansas City and Fargo, it could be somewhat, uh, it could be somewhat um, useful. Yeah. But, but I think that, I, I think it dulls the end of the regular season, and that's that's the thing that, I don't like, and I wish I wish would change. Now, I mean, I'm sure the postseason will be fun with the pick your opponent type of thing, but uh, it's an interesting experiment. But I guess we'll see how it goes. But I, I kind of hope they go some, to something like the Frontier League model next year. I do too, and I, I totally understand that just having a one game wild card, especially on this level, is financially taxing on organizations because you can't really afford to just bus a team. Like, if it's Winnipeg and Kansas City, you really can't afford to bus a team from Winnipeg all the way to Kansas City for one game and then possibly have to bust them back all the way up to Fargo. I understand that's really kind of a tough ask to have. It'd be different if, again, it's like Kane County to Milwaukee or Kane County to Chicago. It's like, okay, that's not too bad. But it does also feel a little cheap at the end of it all. So hopefully they'll do something about it and again like i think if the league was bigger i'd love the structure a lot more because i do think it's very interesting i think it creates a lot of headlines i think it creates a lot of buzz and i think it is different And i do like them trying different things it just the postseason seems too big but before we move on to the atlantic league because we'll have to hit them up quickly uh i did want to point out winnipeg's doing solid too they're 31 27 they could be i wish they weren't in the west i wish they were in the east in the east i think they could be a lot more interesting but in the west yeah. it's like we know who this fight's between. 
Yeah, they're unfortunately they're unfortunately they're in the wrong division, and I mean they have had a, they've have had a good season. I guess we'll see. Uh, they could be maybe a team that that could upset a team like Fargo Moorhead or Kansas City uh, in a in a playoff series that is kind of a crapshoot. So I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean they I mean they they've certainly had a, a very good year though. Yeah, they definitely have. A, it's a really solid rebound year for them, and they finally get to play all their games at home. So that's really right. nice for them to be able to be back in their own ballpark and putting on a good show there. Also, it's not a Jackson, Tennessee for oh, half. That was bad. That was so bad. But uh, so what I just, a time. Yeah. Which I'd also like to point out, Lincoln's 2-8 and eight in their last 10. I don't really know how that happened. And somehow Sioux Falls, they're still like three and a half games out of a playoff spot. But they're 7-3. and three. And they're just doing enough to be like, yeah, we're still here. Remember us. So I do want to acknowledge the the Birdcage boys. Uh, they're they're keeping themselves interesting in all of this. And meanwhile, Sioux City's trying to be interesting, but they're three and seven, so they're just not very interesting. Yeah, and in general, I just don't think the race for I don't think the race of under five hundred teams for a fourth playoff spot and an eight team playoff. Uh, with a league that's 12 teams is that interesting in general. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's kind of like watching a bunch of five-year-olds play soccer. It's like a couple of them have some skill and could be interesting, but by and large, it's just a bunch of children wildly trying to kick a ball and missing more often than not and hitting somebody's shins. So yeah, it's kind of what it reminds me of. But over in the uh, Atlantic League, we got some solid baseball going on. I got to be honest. You know, you got Lancaster with at 11 and 2. They're doing pretty solid. I don't think any of us saw that coming. Gastonia's won 13 in a row. And the Genomes have won 5 in a row after starting 1 and 7. So, like, that's doing pretty, pretty good for them, you know? Meanwhile, High Point, where we're all like, oh, they're basically guaranteed to win the second half, is just the worst team in the second half. And like we were saying with Long Island, we were like, oh, they're practically guaranteed to win the second half in that division. They're the second worst team in the league. It's like everything's been flipped on its head. Even Stanton Island, despite losing their last three, is eight and five. And that's honestly pretty respectable for them. Oh, yeah, it's definitely respectable. I mean, the Atlantic League, honestly, has turned into kind of just pure chaos. Yeah. Uh, High Point did pick up their second win of the second half. Tonight, or I should say tonight, that means Wednesday. Yeah. You want to know what the score of that game was, Nick, against the Lexington Legends? I saw it earlier, but I'll let you uh, break it out because that was historic for them offensively. High point 25, Lexington 9. So not a bad showing for the Lexington offense. Uh, the pitching not, staff, though. No, I, I mean, not a good day for the pitching staff at all i mean i find it, it was it was five to two lexington at one point going to the third inning uh and then high point just put up an eight spot imagine putting up two eight spots in one game i mean we got we got a six for seven day for michael russell uh <laughs> who also has the first cycle in team history as well right i mean my goodness i mean you had a, you, had, you had kicked it off with high point and Austin Glorious walking, uh, walking seven guys in one inning. I mean, what what is happening? And and Henry Owens, Henry, wow. So Henry Owens gave up eight runs and only two were earned. That's I mean, a you, rough you day at the office. You cannot make this up. I mean, this is this is statistical oddities you can only find uh, in an Atlantic League game. But uh, 
Yeah, 25 to 9. But on to more more important things. Uh, the Gastonia Honey Hunters are an absolute wagon. Yeah. And they don't even really have much to play for. But yeah, my they goodness, just... they, they're they an unstoppable force right now. Like, you think, obviously they're going to have to lose at some point. They'll probably lose before this episode goes up. But at the same point, man, they look like the best team in this league right now. And I really would not want to play them. Like, Southern Maryland's still doing good. I mean, they're 9-5. That's obviously solid. And they're only two and a half back in their division. But I just really feel like Estonia has a surprisingly legitimate chance at, uh, at winning it all. Because, like, they just have been consistently good. Like, yeah, they had that one little rough patch, I think, back in, like, May-June-ish period. But overall, they look pretty solid despite losing some important pieces whether to Mexico or to affiliated ball, man, they just look like a solid team every which way you cut it. And really, who's going to be that team that steps up and takes it from them, right? Like, you want to look in the wild card, which is probably where they'd wind up playing a team. You have a not-so-great high-point squad or a not-so-great yeah. wild health squad. I mean, like, come on. this It's lining up pretty good for them. It sure is, and uh, I mean, I think we also uh, in the on the north side of things, we keep waiting. Like, all right, the Ducks have got to turn it around uh, at some point, and they just haven't yeah. at all. I mean, they're now under five hundred for the year, which uh, which is not good. Yeah. Uh, however, but I, I agree. I think whoever comes out of the wild card for Gastonia to play, I mean, you would think they're probably going to roll them yeah. uh assuming because i mean i hate to declare divisions over this quick in the second half yeah. but i mean it's a seven game lead in the south division at the moment so I, a big hill to climb for really any of those teams in kentucky lexington or uh or excuse me wild health lexington and charleston uh but i think that gastonia has just the the guess the gastonia running honey hunters that just continue to uh, just steal bases at an obscene rate, uh, and a team that has improved so much. I mean, they're the best. They they have the best ERA in the league now by quite a bit, at uh, three point five five, which for them is an astounding turnaround. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a team that that has been able to get arms in. They also second in the uh, second in the league in strikeouts uh, on on their end as well. So. I, they're just a really, 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 really good team, uh, and even though they have nothing to play for, they're just still flexing their muscles in that in that division. Yeah, and you brought up something. You touched on something that I really wanted to bring up, which is the amount of like work and the total turnaround of this team in just the past what twelve months or so where they were 12 months ago, where they are having trouble getting guys in, and you had the, the talk of them burning arms into the ground, and all like the chaos that seemed to be around that organization. They weren't winning. They had problems on and off. And now they've just turned around and at the very least corrected the issues on the field, clearly. And that kind of indicates to me that most of the issues off the field have been addressed in some capacity. And so it just seems like a complete and utter turnaround from this team. And I mean, you 
And you love to see this kind of a thing, especially among the newer clubs in the Atlantic League. We've seen, you know, some false starts coming from some of these teams, some rockier starts here. I mean, look no further than Wild Health. You could point to some issues in Staten Island attendance-wise. and On the field, it hasn't been too great either. So there's been issues there. Plus, I know marketing hasn't been great with the Ferry Hawks either. But they, they're also having a very short time to get everything together. They had months as opposed to years to get ready for this so that you could point that out. But regardless of all that, Gastonia really has kind of went from not good, avoid doing this at all costs, to look what you can do. And I think that's the bigger story here is just how much change has happened with that organization in a positive way. But as far as on the field goes, I don't think there's many teams that can hang with them. And even let's say Lancaster doesn't hold on because, I mean, 11-2 and is a ridiculously hot start, particularly 11-1 before they're lost today. So I don't think they're going to be able to hold off the amount of teams they have. You have Southern Maryland that's kind of just consistent. They're not as heavy on it right now, but they have less to play for. Stan Island, I don't think, is going to be able to keep this up. But I mean, they're only three games back, right? So there, there's a fewer teams that have to fight off there. But I, you could very well see another wild card opening up is what I'm trying to get at. So the two wild card teams, if I'm not mistaken, at this point are Wild Health and, let's take a look, at Wild Health and High Point, who have just been kind of falling flat on their face at 2-11, which really yeah. is more like 1-11. So, realistically, you look across the board, you're like, yeah, you could see Gastonia and Southern Maryland as a, like the pair here, and once you get into a championship situation, you can kind of throw prior meetings out because now it's a different element, right? So all in all, it is getting a lot more interesting despite the scores maybe not being as interesting in the micro. In the macro, it's still extremely interesting to watch in the Atlantic League. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, especially if there is indeed a situation with uh, with with wild cards, uh, it it gets really close really quick. And as much as the Ducks have been struggling, I mean the Ducks are only, uh, I mean uh, they're only two games out of the, the wild card spot or the first wild card spot right now. So, um, although I mean, how weird would it be to have a, an Atlantic League playoffs without the Long Island Ducks? I I don't even remember. I don't. I couldn't tell you the last time that happened. I have no idea. Yeah, I wonder. When's the last time they missed the playoffs? We're going to have to look this up here. I'm going to do this real kind of quickly here. But yeah, no, they've just kind of been a staple here. Like, it's more than that, though. When was the last time we had one without Somerset and Long Island? Because it's like, I mean, historically, that's just been the way it goes. Yeah, I guess the last time they missed the playoffs was 2014. Really? That recently? Yeah, 2014 was that. They've only missed the playoffs. So they missed the playoffs. Although I don't know what the uh, w- what the um, playoff sy- system was like, but since 2004, so they missed the playoffs their first four years in existence. Although they had neither near 500 winning records, they also in their first season had an 82 and 58 record and didn't make the playoffs. I don't even know how that happened. But uh, since 2004. They have only missed the playoffs two times in the last 18 years, wow. 2010 and 2014. 2010, they were 70 and 68. In uh, 2014, they were 73 and 67. 
The last time they had a losing season, let's see, was 2013. And believe it or not, 2013, they went 63 and 77. Okay. And won the championship. That's a very Long Island thing to do. The year before, 63 and 74, won the championship. So I, Atlantic League, uh, Atlantic League playoff system, boys and girls. They find new and creative ways to make it confusing. And the thing is, like, you're giving me, like, they were under 500 and won a championship. That very much tells me we played our our asses off in the first half and then just decided we didn't want to play in the second half because there was not as much of a reason to do it. And the thing is, I could totally see that being the case. So, let's see, you got to go back a ways here to try and find when Long Island and Somerset were not there. Ooh. Yeah, because let's see, let's go back 2006. Doesn't really list it, but it could very well be that. I have to, let's see, maybe the Atlantic League website hasn't. Now, that's actually a funny joke to say that they would, but seeing as their records are not really in date, they don't really do that all too much. But maybe they have it. So we're going to park a little bit of time for me to look this up. Yeah, I mean, because now I'm looking. All right, hold on, hold on. Because now this is of interest. They they did not make the playoffs. I forget. I forgot the Somerset Patriots didn't make the playoffs in 2019 in their last Atlantic League season. It's kind of sad when you think about it. That was sad. It could be 2002. Let's see. Uh, correct. 2002. All right. That's what I thought. Cause I looked at, uh, the championship records that are on the site and I was like, I don't see either one of them there. And I don't think it was a prolonged one. Yeah. So 2000, so 2002 is your answer there. Wow. That's 20 years. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> that it's been that long since either since both of those teams missed the Atlantic League postseason, obviously that could be broken with a little bit of an asterisk. But yeah, yeah, because Long Island was above 500 but didn't make it. I don't think at least it doesn't list on baseball reference, and I'm not sure how the playoff system worked then, but it does kind of appear to be that way. And I think Newark won it that year, despite being like way out of it, kind of. And Camden had, like, they all had better records. Yeah, no. So I think they just kind of took the better records because Somerset was 65 and 60, one game or one half game better than Long Island was. Nork won that championship. So that tells me when they beat Bridgeport that they both made it, obviously. And Camden at 71 wins. Now, of course, this is the, the Atlantic League. So logic and reason does not exactly have to exist here. But. Right. You gotta imagine a seventy-one and fifty-four and a seventy-one and fifty-three ball club both made the postseason over a fifth over a sixty-five and sixty-one team. Right. So like if that's the case, then yeah. Which can I just point out one fun fact? For a brief and shiny moment in the Atlantic League's history in two thousand and two, the South Division was comprised of entirely New Jersey teams. Really? Actually, I didn't know that. Yeah, Atlantic City, Camden, Newark, and Somerset. The North, Bridgeport, Long Island, Nashua, and the Road Warriors. Wow. Yeah, that's just kind of an interesting fun fact. I didn't know about that. And actually, with the exception of Bridgeport's 71-55 and record, 
every team in the South Division did better than every team in the North Division. That's a crazy stat. Yeah. <laughs> no, granted, Somerset only does it by a half a game. They played one fewer game than Long Island did, and they managed Long Island lost in that game. But that said, the New Jersey teams overall had a better record than everybody else. Even if you want to pull out the uh, Road Warrior team that went 34-91, which I, we're going to see the Grays do worse than that. And I got to check one thing here to see if uh, there's any teams in the current Atlantic League that have a prayer at beating that. I don't think there is. I think every team's managed to get to 30 wins. Okay, not quite everybody, but... Stan Island's at 27, Lexington's at, uh, Lexington is at 28, and Charleston's at 31. Everybody else is eclipsed 34. So everyone should be doing better than the 2002 uh, Road Warriors team. I'd kind of imagine that both of those two uh, sub-30 win teams can find a way to win another seven and eight games, and that Charleston will not lose all but three of the remaining games. So right. we should be good on that front there. But... I think we've gone off the rails a little bit. I think we're kind of at the breaking point here. So any final thoughts on the Atlantic League before we wrap up the week? Um, I don't think so. Just I wonder if Gastonia will win a game or excuse me, if Gastonia will lose a game uh, by the time we talk next. I would have to think so, but well, it would be crazy if it didn't. If it didn't happen, then it would be kind of insane. I mean, that's about nine days away or so from the next time we record. So if they manage to go on what would essentially be, I guess, an eight-game winning streak, all power to them. They'd be at, what, 21 wins? And we'd have yeah. an inverted Frontier or Empire State Grey situation. Like, I'd be so happy to be able to talk about that. But at the same point, I, I don't expect it. But who knows? It's, space, it's baseball. Anything can happen. Right. Exactly. All right. So on that note... We'll uh, we'll go to the plugs and we'll get out of here. Uh, if you want to follow the show, you can do so on Twitter at IndieBallPod and on Instagram at ALPB underscore news and at IndieBallReport. Uh, you can also find all the show notes. I don't think there's actually going to be any show notes. Maybe just a link to the Kumar Rocker uh, announcement on the Frontier League website. That's probably about it, if anything, in the show notes for this week. But there's show notes for all the previous shows as well as, you know, players for all the previous shows you can find all our old episodes old interviews the whole nine on uh the website indieballreport.com and you can listen to the show wherever you find podcasts or so tune in stitcher spotify podomatic apple podcast google podcast uh and to any other real major podcatcher i think gone is a major one in africa so we can, you can listen there you can listen to Castbox. just by name where the has podcasts the show is available so if you're able to uh like rate, review, and subscribe for more content. That being said, do we have anything else left to add this week? Um, only thing I have left to add is I thought the uh, I thought the home run derby was fun. I thought Julio Julio Rodriguez. I almost oh, I I almost nailed that prediction. I, I had Julio Rod. If, if you run the, if you run last week's episode back, I had Julio Rodriguez winning the home run derby. I'm not sure how many people were on that train, but uh, I thought he was going to win. He almost did. He hit the most home runs by far, but unfortunately, that's not how the home run bracket, the home run derby bracket works. Uh, but still, a great showing for Julio Rodriguez uh, and Juan Soto, whose team will not fly him out 
uh, on a on a private jet because he rejected their 440 million contract uh, extension offer. Uh, I guess we'll see where he goes as well. Yeah, which two points? One, did anyone on the show predict Juan Soto to win it? I don't. Did what did you? Who did you predict? You had Alonzo, didn't you? No, I did not. I said Juan Soto would win that thing. And you I'm said gonna, Soto. I'm gonna run that tape back right somewhere in this segment. There's gonna be the tape there. I want to say Alonzo for a three peat because I mean, like the dude's just a tank. But I'm going Juan Soto. There's something about Juan Soto that just I feel like Juan Soto. I'm going him. And then I recall somebody going. I just don't see Juan Soto as the kind of guy that wins the home run derby. Okay. I see. As amazing of a hitter as Juan Soto is, he doesn't strike me as a home run derby type of guy. That's just, as, as incredible of a hitter as he is. I don't know. He doesn't strike me as a guy who would, who would do that well in a home run derby. See, he shouldn't have. Julio should have won it. Well, see, that's kind of funny because he didn't win it, but that's unimportant. And the second part is, incredibly petty by the Nats. I hate it because they should have flown him out, but at the same time, a small part of me kind of is like, it is kind of funny that you chose not to fly him out, but the fact he flew a commercial, got in at 130, and then still won the home run derby, it's extremely impressive. It is. And the fact that he just was like, you know what? I'm going to turn down $440 million in money. Because I can, and I think I'm going to get more money on the open market, is incredibly both gutsy and stupid at the same time. Because how much does it take to turn down nearly a half a billion dollars in money? <laughs> like you gotta believe in yourself. That's really, for sure. like how much money do you think he's going to sign for in this off season? Well. When he's traded, I think the extension will be north of five. I, I think the extension will be around five hundred. But I think I, I think that it has less to do with like the money being that far off, and more just the Nationals are terrible and are going to be bad for a while. So I don't want to play there. But I think a that's lot changes it. over what 14, 15 years. A lot changes. Yeah, but the Nats are really bad. So I, I don't mean, know. They can be you're, really you're bad. Right. But You're like, right. You can but, only suck for so many years before you just luck into good players or you luck into a good season. Like, you gotta be decent at a certain point. You can't be bad for 15 years in a row. Not even the Mets were bad for 15 years in a row. They had some good years in there. So, like, I, I'm sorry. Like, it's still incredibly large amounts of money. And who can afford to pay him that? You know? Like, there's a list of maybe six teams that can be like, yeah, we can go ahead and sign them to $440 million over 14 years. And how many of those teams have the prospects to trade for them? Maybe, like, two. Like, I think maybe the Yankees do. Yeah, but they have the judge issue to sort out. Right. Well, yeah, it's one or the other. Yeah. The, so, and, I mean, if you're not picking Juan Soto over Aaron Judge long-term... Like a hundred times out of a hundred, you're crazy. Well, absolutely, but, but I mean, like at the same time, the Yankees got a lot of money committed already, and like obviously, Juan Soto is the better player. But this is also New York, and for whatever reason, we're like homegrown means a lot, even though they go out and spend a stupid amount of money every off season. 
Yeah, he's so, also seven years younger. I mean, like, yeah, like no one's arguing that Juan Soto is by far the better player yeah. on every metric. But at the same time, you do know that there is going to be some kind of dumb narrative that gets started where, oh, sure, they'll pay Juan Soto, but they won't pay a homegrown face like Aaron Judge, despite everyone yeah. in the, with any sort of baseball sense going, well, yes, Juan Soto is a better player overall and is seven years younger. So you right. can sign him to a 14-year contract and still be like, well, the first 10 years are going to be great. It's those last four that are going to be terrible. But you're not paying for like the last seven. You're paying for the first seven. Yeah. So it is what it is at that point. Like that. And is he going to wind up being like a Dodger? Because I could kind of see him being a Dodger too. And the Dodgers literally don't care about the luxury tax. So I wouldn't put it past anyone. Yeah. That or would would it kind of burn people if, if he became an Astro? The Astros don't have the prospects to get them, though. Their farm because they lost a first and a second round pick for two years due to their due to the sign stealing, which kind of tr- destroyed their farm system. So uh, they don't really have much at this point. Sugarland Skeeters not exactly bumping with prospects. Or wait, Space Cowboys. <laughs> I was gonna say, sir, the Skeeters are dead. They're the Sugarland Space Cowboys because Space Cowboys. We can't possibly keep any of that old identity. That's got to go. Yeah, I mean. Maybe the Cardinals or something? I don't know. They could pay him. And they <laughs> yeah. have prospects. But Steve Cohen Steve Cohen's a mad enough man to be like, yeah, we'll just trade everything to go get Juan Soto and pay him five hundred million because money doesn't matter to me. Right, but I can't see the Nats trading him in division. That's why I don't buy into the whole Mets Soto stuff. So I don't know. But think of how much fun it would be. It would be fun. I hope he gets out of the American League. I hope he stays in the National League, but we'll see. So really, you're on the anyone but the Yankees kind of train. Correct. So, you know, it would be really funny, but won't happen because they're too cheap to do it. If the Rays were to get him. Imagine they just got a new owner and they're like, yeah, we're going to trade for Juan Soto now. I mean, they could do it. If they were willing to pay him, they have the prospects. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like, And if you're going to sit here and tell me like, Juan Soto doesn't like absolutely make them like a World Series contender, especially with the BS Devil Ray magic they have, where they just find random dudes in like the Frontier League that they're like, oh yeah, we have this undisclosed metric that he's like in the top 2% in the world in. So we're going to just pick him up dirt cheap. And then he's going to turn into like an all star closer in two years. Like they definitely have that kind of ability. And they're already a good enough team. And if you pair him with like Wandar Franco, I feel like that's a really good one-two punch. Yeah, and it would it would be insane. Plus, that is a that's a marketable pair right there. You could really market that. And if you wanted to have a brand new ballpark, and if you were to get that ballpark, you could go ahead and have those two as cornerstones going forward. And that draws a lot of people in. Plus, they're fun young players, and that goes a long way. Their current ownership group will never pay it, though. Oh, absolutely. If, if the current ownership group was willing to pay money, they'd have a stadium by now, and they wouldn't have to do this thing where they ship off good players every two, th- two to three years. Right. Which, to be fair, has also worked out well for them, because imagine they would have paid Chris Archer. Yeah, that's true. They'd they, still did be get, they did get that perfectly. Yeah, that one, there's a couple other ones where it's like, yeah, it has worked out for them. So it indirectly works out. 
but yeah it'll be interesting to see how that goes but anywho i think we're just about done here i don't think i got anything else to add and uh until next time don't forget to play ball